Well, welcome back. We're uh, delighted so many folks uh, have stayed for part two uh, of our discussion of Obamacare in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. Uh, I hope it is because of the great quality of the panel that you're going to have right here, and not just because we are one of the few places in town that has air conditioning. Uh, you are going to see a great panel today and a discussion more of policy. Because after all, what we now know is that Obamacare is constitutional, or at least the Supreme Court says it is. But we also know that other than that, nothing about it has changed. Uh, the fact is, this is still a health care uh, bill under which, or law under which you cannot necessarily keep your current insurance, even if you're happy with it. It is a health care law that will cost billions, if not trillions, more in new spending, new debt, new taxes. It is a health care law that puts in place the structures that down the road will ultimately lead to the rationing of care. And it is a law under which we could actually end up with fewer insured people than we have today. So there's a lot of reason to wonder about the policy going forward. What should be done about this? What can be done about it? People talk about repeal and replace. Repeal is easy. What do we mean when we say replace? And why should we repeal, let alone replace? So we have a panel today that's going to be talking a lot about that. Uh, first up today is Grace Marie Turner. Uh, Grace Marie and I go back uh, a long way. Uh, she's been working on health care uh, since the Hillary Care days, at least, uh, back uh, in the days when she created something called the Consensus Group, which was a wide range of think tanks ranging from center left to right across the political spectrum that came out with some ideas for market-based health care reform. And then she went on to found the Galen Institute, which uh, she heads now and is probably one of the premier organizations promoting market-based health care reform. Uh, she is tied in to pretty much everyone and everything in Washington and has been uh, all the while I've known her. Uh, so she is certainly someone who knows uh, what is going on in this town. With that, I'll be happy to turn it over to you. So Grace Marie. Thank you very much, Michael. And thank you for all that you and Cato do to um, keep the conversation going about free market ideas and health reform and for your diligence on these issues. Remember Nancy Pelosi, we have to pass this bill to find out what's in it. And now we all have to find out what's in it. I think a lot of us really believed that we would be rescued from this law by the Supreme Court. Strike it all down. We don't want to know what, find out what's in it. We now know that we do have to learn what's in it. And the president has to spend the next four months defending a law that he has basically stopped talking about in the two years plus since this has passed. Every time he talked about it, his poll numbers went down, so he stopped talking about it. Now, not only does he have to defend the law, but he has, this law now has a big sign around its neck calling it a tax. They're doing everything they can to say it's a penalty, not a tax, but if they say that, then they basically are invalidating the Supreme Court's justification for upholding the individual mandate. 
It's also, I think, important to recognize that the Supreme Court did not uphold Obamacare. Two specific issues, as we heard in the last panel, were under, uh, under question. The individual mandate and the Medicare, the, the Medicaid expansion. See, even after all these years, we still do that. If either one of them had been struck, or both of them had been struck, then the whole law could have come down. But there are many, many other challenges to many other provisions in this law that are making their way through the courts. And we'll talk about a few of those in a minute. Instead of upholding Obamacare, the court reached a very narrow decision. The individual mandate is valid as a tax, Chief Justice Roberts said. Now, otherwise free citizens will be required to spend our own personal after-tax money to purchase an expensive private product that can cost $20,000 a year for a family, or pay a tax. And the state can, states can tell the federal government that they, the, the federal government can tell the states to dramatically expand their Medicaid programs, but there's basically no consequence if they do not. So we need to get ready for the debate. About seven in 10 Americans had told pollsters they wanted the Supreme Court to take down all or part of this law. Since it didn't do that, we all now must be armed with the facts to help people understand what's really in the law. Get ready, over the next several months, the president really leading up to the election, the president is going to talk almost exclusively about 26-year-olds on their parents' policies pre-existing conditions, some uh, maybe a billion dollars in refunds extracted from health insurance companies because they couldn't figure out how to jump through Kathleen Sebelius' latest hoops. That is maybe a few dozen pages at most in this law. It's incumbent on us, I think, to understand what's in the other 27, 2,650 pages in this law so that we can be informed about what this means for our economy, our health sector, and really the future of freedom. I have a checklist of the 10 worst things in Obamacare that are not the individual mandate and the Medicaid expansion. Number one, the employer mandate. This is the deterrent to job creation Employers will be required to provide and pay certain percentages of help for health insurance policies for their employees or pay a penalty. Penalty tax. Well, that was not, by the way, questioned by, before the court whether or not the employer mandate is a penalty or a tax. I think it would be wise to anticipate that there would very likely be some other court challenges to the employer mandate. Michael Cannon has done some really terrific work on how states can protect themselves and their businesses from the employer mandate that he'll be talking to you about. Number two, the anti-conscience mandate, the HHS mandate. Kathleen Sebelius, this is, by the way, wasn't really in the actual text of the legislation. The legislation said that preventive care will be covered at no cost to policyholders, to employees. And Secretary Sebelius, in consultation with the Institute of Medicine and others, decided that that would include free 
abortion drugs, sterilization, and contraception. The, the Catholic bishops are wisely, I believe, challenging this in court as a tremendous affront to their religious liberty. Number three, new and higher taxes. The law contains at least 20, now 21, now that we know that the mandate is, an, is a tax, totaling more than half a trillion dollars over 10 years that will hit medical innovators, health insurance, and even the sale of your home. The Americans for Tax Reform has a really good list on its website, atr.org, of the many taxes that are in this law in addition to the tax on not paying for health insurance. $123 billion on investment income, a surtax on investment income, $86 billion in the Medicare payroll tax, it taxes on, uh, on health insurance, which is of course going to increase premiums, and the uh, fees that we're all going to be paying if we don't purchase health insurance. Number four, the Independent Payment Advisory Board. This is a board of unelected, unappointed, uh, unelect, unelected appointed bureaucrats with virtually no, um, no need to respond to the voters, the electorate, that has huge power over spending in Medicare. The Goldwater Institute in Arizona is challenging this as, as, again, an unconstitutional use of allowing these unelected officials to have tremendous say over Medicare spending. State exchanges, number five. States can be compelled to set up these vast new bureaucracies. This is still in the law. To check into our finances, our family size, our health habits in some cases, so they can hand out generous taxpayer subsidies for health insurance of our choice based upon the choices that are given to us for families making up to $90,000 a year, and that number will continue to go up. Number six, Medicare payment cuts. The Medicare program is a big piggy bank to pay for the law, 575 billion dollars in cuts to Medicare, we can talk about the specifics of that, that will hit Medicare Advantage plans, uh, drug companies that will cause more and more physicians to stop seeing Medicare patients if these cuts actually go into effect. They're unrealistic cuts, and yet they are a big pay for for the law. Higher health costs. The Kaiser Family Foundation says the average price of a family policy has risen $2,200 since President Obama took office. When he took office, he promised that the average price of the family policy would be reduced by $2,500 by the end of his first term. I don't know about you, but $4,700 is pretty big mark to miss when you're talking about the average family budget and the average family that has already been hit so hard in this recession. Number eight, government control over doctor decisions, value-based payment systems, quality reporting requirements. At least half of doctors are seriously considering leaving the practice of medicine rather than practice mother may I medicine with all of these rules and regulations that are going to be so dictate how they practice medicine and what they're able to provide. 
Number nine, huge deficits. The CBO has raised its cost estimate for the law now to $1.76 trillion from the slightly less than $1 trillion when the law was actually passed, by the way, to reduce, reduce our budget deficit, which no one believed. But on the floor of the House of Representatives, I actually watched the final vote um, that fateful Sunday night from the House Gallery as the members of Congress were talking about all the wonders of this law and it was going to reduce the budget deficit. We're going to get to universal coverage. And by the way, even under the most optimistic projections, we missed that mark by 25 million people. But the, the deficits are going to go on and on. Doug Holtzaken from American Action Forum estimates that as many as 35 million additional people will wind up getting subsidized coverage through the exchanges because of the perverse incentives and dislocations in the market, increasing the cost of this law by another $1 trillion. And number 10, at least 159 new boards, commissions, agencies, programs, Independent Payment Advisory Board is only one of them, that will have huge control over virtually every aspect of how this health, our one-sixth of our economy, our health sector works. Even if the individual mandate and the employer mandate had been struck, I believe that the authority in this law to create all of these boards and commissions could easily move us toward government-run single-payer system. I believe the, you know, the, the miracle is that this is three months, four months before national presidential election. The American people will have their say in deciding whether or not they want Obamacare to stand or fall. I think it is important that they learn that it is a lot more than 26-year-olds on their parents' policies, which the insurance companies, by the way, have said that they will now do voluntarily. And some of the other smaller provisions, Republicans are talking a lot about what they would do to help people with pre-existing condition. OVIC is going to be talking with you about that. But it is now up to us to be informed and to help people understand what's in the law. Several of my colleagues and I wrote a book called Why Obamacare is Wrong for America available on any internet site, Amazon, to really help people understand the impact on families, on businesses, on doctors and patients, and on us as taxpayers and freedom-loving citizens. A real tool and resource if you are so inclined to, um, to learn more about what's in this law. I think it's our duty as citizens. Thank you very much. Thank you, Grace Marie. Uh, next up is Michael Cannon, uh, who is the director of health policy studies here at the Cato Institute, which means he is basically in charge of all of Cato's healthcare work. Uh, he is also uh, my co-author of a book called Healthy Competition: What Is uh, Wrong with Healthcare and How to Free It, or What Is Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. Uh, by co-author, I actually mean the principal author of the book. Uh, and he is also the co-editor uh, with me of a new book which should be out in a couple of weeks, a new e-book called Going Forward, Healthcare Reform After Obamacare. Uh, and by co-editor, uh, I mean the principal editor of the, of the book. So I am uh, delighted now to turn it over to Michael Cannon.
Thanks, Mike, and thank you, Ovik and Grace Marie, and all of you for, for coming here today. I, I'm going to talk about how the Obama health law is weaker and how the path to repeal is clearer than it was one week ago. Uh, first, though, I'm going to, uh, uh, I want to talk about uh, the day of the ruling. Uh, the day of the ruling, I spoke to a number of, 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 of reporters. I did a radio program opposite a former Obama administration health policy advisor, an advisor to the president. The host of the radio program asked her if she could think of anyone who would be harmed by the Supreme Court's decision, anyone who would be harmed by the Obama health law remaining in place. She said she could not. Now think about that. This is a law that is spending $2 trillion over the next 10 years. That's just the federal budget. It is going to be compelling states individuals, well, maybe less so states than before, states, employers, individuals, to be spending further trillions of dollars. And this Obama advisor couldn't think of a single person who would be hurt by having the government spend all of that money, much less taking all that money away from the people who earned it in the first place. There wasn't enough airtime then or now for me to talk about all the ways that this law is going to hurt, is already hurting and is going to hurt Americans in the future. Grace Marie already mentioned some of them, but a few are how the mandates in this law, uh, how the mandates that this law imposes on businesses are discouraging employers from hiring, how the medical device tax in particular will eliminate jobs in that industry, the million or more people that this law has already thrown out of their health plans. The Robert, Wood found, uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation study that estimated this law will cause 150,000 Americans with high cost conditions, very sick Americans, to lose their health insurance and give them nowhere to go. Uh, how this law has caused some premiums to rise by 20 to 30 percent, and that was almost immediately upon uh, it, it taking effect. How supporters of the law acknowledge that it will cause some people's premiums to double even after all of the tax credits and subsidies that the law makes available. How the law will impose implicit marginal tax rates in excess of 100% on low and middle income Americans. There's how the law is threatening civil liberties like when the Secretary of Health and Human Services effectively threatened insurance carriers with bankruptcy for the crime of telling their subscribers how much this law was increasing their premiums. And as Grace Marie mentioned, there's how this law threatens religious liberty by forcing people to pay for things that they consider immoral. And then the one that bothers me the most, which is how this law's health insurance exchanges create a race to the bottom by literally forcing insurance companies to provide lousy coverage to the sick and deny care to the sick. Supporters say, supporters of the Obama health law say that this law is a matter of life and death. I don't think they have any idea how right they are. And it isn't just the administration and, it's, and it, uh, the Obama administration that's oblivious. Um, uh, after the ruling, I spoke to a reporter uh, who has followed American health care debates for decades. I told him that repealing the Obama health law is health care reform because that law is hurting so many people, especially the supposedly popular parts of that law are hurting people. The supposedly popular dependent coverage mandate that requires employers who offer dependent coverage to offer it to dependents up to the age of 26. That one provision through 6,000 spouses and children uh, of members of an SEIU local in New York out of their health insurance coverage, leaving them with nothing. He said he had never heard about that. He never heard about that happening. 
uh, the supposedly popular pre-existing condition provisions that took effect six months after the law was signed. Uh, I mentioned him have caused carriers in 39 states to flee the market for child-only health insurance and have caused those markets to collapse in 17 states, leaving parents uh, who don't get dependent coverage at work or grandparents who are raising their children with nowhere to go to get health insurance for their children. He again said he had never heard about that part either. So we clearly have a lot of education to do, but I keep thinking that uh, the polling has been consistent on this law for two years. The public has opposed this law consistently ever since it was first introduced in Congress. There's a recent New York Times poll that found that 65% of the public and more than 70% of political independents wanted the Supreme Court to strike down all or part of this law. And yet we keep hearing over and over again that the reason the American people don't like this law is because they don't understand it. I think the people who don't understand this law tend to be geographically concentrated here in Washington, DC. <laughs> and uh, you know, when we were planning this forum, uh, we were planning it, uh, I think as Roger mentioned, before the Supreme Court handed down its ruling. And we didn't know, of course, what we were going to be saying when we got here. I was hoping, I was, I was sort of fantasizing, uh, that I would be able to pivot from talking about all the ways that this law is already hurting people and will hurt American patients even more in the future, uh, from talking ab to talking about all of the healthcare reforms that are available that actually would make healthcare more affordable, that would bring it within reach of low-income people, people who cannot afford it right now. I didn't get my wish, but I am glad for this. I'm glad that I can pivot to talking about how the Supreme Court made the Obama health law significantly weaker and cleared the path for repealing it. It's now clear that uh, last week's Supreme Court ruling severely hobbled the law. The law already gave states the ability to block about half of its new entitlement spending simply by refusing to create one of the new government agencies that it asks states to create. These are called health insurance exchanges. The court's ruling gave states the power to block the rest of this law's new entitlement spending. So state officials now have it within their power to reduce, collectively, to reduce the federal uh, deficit over the next 10 years by $1.6 trillion. And all they have to do is sit on their hands. All they have to do is say, no, thank you. We're not going to implement this law. The, the law relies on states to implement two of its essential components. One I already mentioned is the uh, health insurance exchanges. The other is the expansion of the Medicaid program. The exchanges will channel about $800 billion to private insurance companies. The Medicaid expansion will spend about $900 billion over the next 10 years, much of that also going to private health insurance companies. States, contrary to, uh, uh, to popular myth, which has been advanced by a lot of supporters of this law, states are under no obligation to do either of these things. It's now clear that they're under no obligation to expand their Medicaid programs, but they are under no obligation and never were under any obligation to create a health insurance exchange and they should refuse to do, uh, to, to do either. It's a myth, another popular myth, is that if states create a health insurance exchange, they'll have greater flexibility or more control over how the Obama health law uh, takes effect in their state. It, while it is true that the federal government uh, can, under the law, create a health insurance exchange uh, in a state that does not create one itself, it's by no means certain that the federal government will be able to do that because the law appropriates no funds for them to do it, and the Republicans in Congress who control the House of Representatives are not likely to give them any money to do that. Uh, but the law also requires state-run exchanges 
to be approved by the Secretary of Health and Human Services and empowers the Secretary to force a state-run exchange to do anything and everything that she would have done through a federal exchange. And for the privilege of having the Secretary dictate how, they run, how states run their own exchanges, states would have to pay 10 to $100 million per year in operating costs. And here uh, are the estimates we've been able to collect for how much uh, those operating costs will be in individual states in just the first year that states have to pay for these health insurance exchanges. Now, more important, due to the interlocking nature of all these, of, of, of the Obama health law's many features, uh, in particular, the exchanges in the employer mandate, the employer mandate which taxes employers up to $3,000 per worker if they fail to offer required coverage. States that create exchanges will be needlessly uh, exposing their employers to that employer mandate, to that $3,000 per worker tax. Now, why is that? Well, the law is clear on this point. That tax is only enforceable in a state that creates its own health insurance exchange, because what triggers that tax is if one of that employer's workers goes into an exchange and receives a tax credit or a, uh, a, a, a subsidy to purchase health insurance, and those tax credits and those subsidies are available only through state-run exchanges. They are not available through exchanges created by the federal government. The law is very clear about this. It laboriously and explicitly restricts those tax credits and subsidies to exchanges created by states. So states that, uh, states that refuse to create an exchange can therefore block those subsidies, they can exempt their employers from that tax, and they can even lure jobs away from other states where uh, states that do impose that tax on their employers unnecessarily. Now the court did hand uh, the law a serious defeat uh, by striking down uh, its Medicaid mandate. Federal Medicaid grants comprise uh, an average of 12% of state revenues right now. Uh, the law commanded states to expand their Medicaid programs dramatically uh, on pain of losing all federal Medicaid grants. So they basically said, either you expand your Medicaid programs the way uh, we want you to, incur significant new costs to do that, or you're losing 12% of your revenues. Uh, 26 states led by Florida challenged that mandate as unconstitutionally coercive, and they won. The court ruled that the federal government can't do that. They can't withhold existing Medicaid grants from the states that failed to expand their programs, and so now states can refuse to expand their programs without fear of reprisal, and they should. This is it. Medicaid is a program that is rife with fraud and abuse. Some estimates put, in some states put uh, fraud and abuse at 30% of Medicaid expenditures. My colleague uh, Jagadish Gokhale estimates that uh, this Medicaid expansion would cost states like Florida, Kansas, Illinois, and Texas roughly $20 billion per, uh, in the, in each in its first 10 years, while states like New Jersey and New York would pay significantly more, 35 and, uh, and $53 billion. Now, California, California, they make out like bandits under this. So just so you think we're, we're not cooking the books here, uh, California would actually net money if they expanded their Medicaid programs. But they should still refuse to expand their Medicaid programs because just as uh, this is money that states don't have, the federal government with its $1.1 trillion uh, current year deficit and $11 trillion accumulated debt can't afford to spend another $900 billion that it doesn't have. And states, and this includes California, can expect that whatever these projections say right now, their costs will exceed initial projections. 
Uh, because the moment the U.S. credit rating suffers another downgrade, Congress will shift more costs, costs to the states. Uh, people call it predatory federalism. You get this, Congress gets the states hooked on this low introductory rate. And as soon as they're hooked, they change the terms on them. So far, about 73 members of Congress have, uh, have sent a letter to, um, to the National Governors Association urging them not to create a health insurance exchange because that is essential to repealing this law. Uh, before that even happened, governors were already uh, expressing their uh, refusal to do so. Um, Governor Rick Scott in Florida, who's the first one to uh, refuse to create a health insurance exchange after the ruling on Medicaid came out and said, we're not going to expand our Medicaid programs either. Uh, our Medicaid program either. Uh, uh, Governor Bobby Jindal in Louisiana has said the same. Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin has said the same. Other governors are making similar noises. They are not going to expand this Medicaid program, and it makes sense. If 26 of them sued the federal government because the cost of that expansion was unduly burdensome, uh, then you can bet that uh, at least some of those, if not all of those, are, are going to refuse to expand their Medicaid program, uh, are going to refuse to take on those costs. And but it's not that you need a governor to do this for you. Remember, we're talking about states passing laws to implement a federal law. All that it takes to derail these, uh, these, these new federal entitlements is one committee chairman or one block of legislators in one or the other chamber of a state legislature or a veto from a governor. And you begin to see, and we can block, and that state can block the uh, Obama Health Laws Health Insurance Exchange or its Medicaid expansion. And you begin to see just how vulnerable the law is right now in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, I think that the public is likely to reward state officials who do block implementation of this law before the ruling. 65% uh, of the public and more than 70% of independents wanted either part or all of the law struck down. And I think that given the court invented a rather slippery rationale for, for I, I won't say upholding, they did not uphold this law. They, they, they declared it con unconstitutional, but then declined to strike it down because another law might have been constitutional. But because they, the court came up with that slippery rationale for leaving this law on the books, um, I think the backlash against Obamacare is likely to grow. And so, as I said, the Obama health law now is weaker and the path to repeal is clearer than it was last week. And even though I'm very disappointed in the court's uh, decision, I think that, uh, like I said, the path ahead is clear. Thank you. Thank you. And last, uh, last up is Ulrich Roy, who is a senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute, uh, who is actually been bouncing around from forums like this one after another for the last uh, couple of days. Uh, so we're glad to have him here. I have to tell you, he is one person whose blogs and columns I make sure I read every day just about. They seem to come out. And uh, they always have real boring in-depth into the law in, in ways that uh, you know, <laughs> finding new stuff in there. I've read all 2,500 pages. So if you haven't read all 2,500 pages, you'll really get something out of, out of uh, his, his digging on that. Uh, he is also uh, significantly uh, an advisor to the Romney campaign on health care, and God knows Mitt Romney can use all the advice he can get. <laughs> so uh, in that point, uh, we're happy to have him with us, and I'll turn it over to you. And, and he, meant, he meant boring in the sense of drilling down. That's what he meant. Valuable. I think he meant it in both ways, or at least it would be accurate for him to have meant it in both ways. 
Well, thank you, thank you for having me here. Um, I should disclose, uh, since, uh, since Michael was kind enough to mention my affiliation with the Romney campaign, that I'm an advisor to the Romney campaign. Governor Romney gets advice from many people, and I do not speak for the campaign. Having said that, I'm very glad to be here. Uh, the Cato Institute has been at the forefront of opposing the individual mandate uh, from its earliest days, uh, uh, not too far from here uh, in Washington in the 1990s. And uh, it's an appropriate day to have an event like this. I'm here to let you in on a little secret. The individual mandate is too weak. The individual mandate in Obamacare requires that every American, uh, with some exceptions, buys health insurance or pays a fine. And I don't subscribe to the idea that it's a tax. It's a fine. That fine maxes out at $695 per year, or 2% of your, or 2.5% of your adjusted gross income. Now, remember that the average health insurance uh, policy for a family in America in the private market costs $15,000 a year. And now, thanks to Obamacare, as the president reminded us last week, you don't have to have insurance to get care because uh, if you get sick, you now have a pre-existing condition. You can go to the hospital, buy insurance that day, and the insurance company has to accept you. <coughs> and so if you have a choice between spending $15,000 on a health insurance plan or 695 to get uh, all the same care as someone who's insured, which will you choose? I think the choice is clear. And this really gets to the heart of what Obamacare is and what I think, because of all the controversy around the constitutional challenges and some of the other related aspects of the law, has been completely missed in this law. And that is that this law will massively drive up the cost of health insurance in the private market, effectively destroying the private health insurance market, unless significant reform takes place in the ensuing years or repeal. What it comes down to, in essence, is that Obamacare inverts the laws of health economics. And the key principle to understand here is called adverse selection. So what happens in insurance is, let's take the example of homeowner's insurance. So let's say you have um, two, two people who own homes of relatively equal value. One uh, person lives in a neighborhood where a lot of arson attacks take place. Another person lives right next to a fire station in uh, a town or a re region of a town with low crime. <coughs> Those houses are of the same value. But one is of lower risk than the other in terms of the risk that that house will burn down. Should they both pay the same for their homeowners and insurance? Classical economic theory would be that they shouldn't, that the person who lives in the higher risk area, where he has a higher risk of arson, should pay more for his insurance than the person who lives next to the fire station in the safe area. And it's not merely a matter of morality, it's a matter of economics. If I live in the home next to the fire station, and you ask me, well, you have to pay as much for your health insurance uh, or your homeowner's insurance as the person who lives in the arson zone, I'm going to say, you know what, that's not a good deal for me. 
I'm going to pay a lot more for my insurance than the actual risk that my home is going to burn down, I'm out. I'm not going to buy that insurance plan. And that's what creates adverse selection, because what ends up happening is only the people who live in the arson zones buy the insurance, because their average expense or their average claim is much higher, the cost of insurance goes up, because insurance is a way of averaging out the overall expenditures for the whole group. Insurance continues to get progressively expensive. People who are in progressively safer but also you know, moderately risky areas opt out. It's a bad deal. And the insurance market goes away because it's unaffordable for everyone. That's exactly what Obamacare will do in the private insurance market because the Americans who will be forced to pay this mandate fine know that it's a better deal for them to pay that fine than to buy insurance. And that's not the only aspect of Obamacare that accelerates the adverse selection problem. The law uh, does something called community rating, which forces young people to pay as much as 75% more for their insurance so that older people will pay slightly less for theirs. The law has these coverage mandates. Every insurance plan must cover contraception. Every insurance plan must cover uh, drug abuse. So it has all these things that maybe you won't need but you will have to pay for. It's like uh, going to the restaurant and, and being told that you're going to have to have a seven-course meal even if, you had, if you only, even if you only wanted four courses and don't really like seafood. So that's, that's kind of the economics we're talking about. All these benefits sound great. Oh, every insurance plan will have to do this. Every insurance will be, have to do that. But every single one of those requirements, those mandates, drives up the cost of insurance. And everything that makes insurance more expensive makes it a raw deal for the young people who are uninsured today. This is the key thing about the uninsured population. The uninsured population is predominantly young. 55% of all the people in America without insurance are under the age of 35. 72% are under the age of 45. These young and healthy people don't buy insurance because government regulation makes insurance too expensive for them. A CBO did a study, the Congressional Budget Office did a study a few years ago asking why are people uninsured? They're uninsured, 72% said, or 71% said it was because of high cost of insurance. 62% said because their employer didn't offer it or they were unemployed. Only 4% said that it was because of their health status, that they were getting rejected for insurance because of health status. The vast majority of people who are uninsured are not in, uninsured because of pre-existing conditions. The vast majority of people who are uninsured are uninsured because insurance is too expensive. And insurance is too expensive because of government policies that drive up the cost of health insurance. And Obamacare is exhibit A. It does everything precisely almost as if it were pre-designed to destroy the private insurance market. So that is the first problem you have to understand about Obamacare, that the preservation of this weak individual mandate and all the other aspects of the law, all the other insurance regulations that the president touted at the White House the other day, those things sound nice in theory for the 1% of people who benefit from them. But for the 99% of people who do not, insurance will go up. And insurance is not cheap today. The average median household income in America today is $51,000. The average family insurance plan, as I mentioned, is $15,000. That's 29% of household income. In the last year alone, the price of insurance went up by 9% because of Obamacare's regulations. 
This will continue to go up. Think of if your tax burden went up 9% a year for the next 10 years. What would you say? But yet, that's exactly what Obamacare is. It's not a tax. It's forced allocation of your own money to insurance and health care. And that is ultimately the biggest, biggest problem with this law. I'm going to briefly touch on one other thing. The Supreme Court, as others have noted, allows states now to opt out of the Medicaid expansion in the law. By this keystroke of John Roberts, he may have expanded the federal deficit by $500 billion over the next 10 years and expanded our unfunded liabilities by trillions. The reason for this is that the, uh, the law expands coverage in two ways, one by expanding Medicaid, the existing program for the poor, and also by creating these new subsidized exchanges for the states. But the eligibility for these two programs overlaps between 100% of the federal poverty level and 138% of the federal poverty level. And the exchanges are much more generous. They spend a lot more per person than Medicaid does. And it's all federal dollars, whereas state is shared broadly by the states and the federal government. So states have an incentive, particularly those states that currently have very generous Medicaid programs, to pair those programs back, put all those people on the exchanges, where they'll get much more generous coverage at the expense of taxpayers in other states. And Douglas Holtz Eakin, a former director of, of the CBO who was uh, brought up earlier, he's estimated that this will cost, it could cost as much as a trillion dollars over 10 years, but a more realistic uh, mid-case scenario is that it's $500 billion over the next 10 years. And that's, that's so, so John Roberts didn't just reinvent the definition of taxation. He also added $500 billion to the deficit last week. Finally, I was asked to talk about what are the real solutions? What are the solutions that Governor Romney uh, is promoting and, and, and offering and proposing? And, and what should those who believe in market-oriented solutions uh, seek to achieve in our healthcare system? I think the most important first principle to understand is that there's a lot of misunderstanding about American healthcare. We often hear this rhetoric from our political leaders that American healthcare is the best in the world. And there was nothing wrong with it before Obamacare. Well, it's true that American healthcare is, is very good in many ways, but there were many things wrong with it before Obamacare. Before Obamacare, it, government spent half of the healthcare expenditures in America. Before Obamacare, the United States federal and state governments spent more per capita on healthcare than all but two other countries in the world, Luxembourg and Norway. We spend more per capita, our government spends more per capita on healthcare than France, Canada, the UK, Germany, all these countries that we think of as the socialist utopias, they spend, their governments spend less on health care per capita than the United States. So this is not a system that's sustainable. It's a system that requires real change. And the, the principal theme, I would say, of Governor Romney's proposals is put individuals and localities in charge of their own health dollars again. With Medicare, put seniors in, in charge of their own health plans, let them choose a plan that's right for them, and spend more if they want a, a more luxurious plan, and keep the savings if they want to spend less. With Medicaid, let states and individuals control their own Medicaid dollars. And with the private insurance market, we need to move to a system where people own their own insurance plans, instead of having them uh, determined for you by where you work. Because that's the way to shop for value. If individuals own their own plans, they can keep them when they change jobs. You can keep your plan when you lose your job. 
You can shop for the plan that's right for you instead of buying the inflated, overly expensive plan that your HR bureaucrat chose for you. And in that way, we can truly start to move to bring the cost of insurance down. And if you bring the cost of insurance down, you make insurance more affordable and you put more people, more people can afford to have insurance and you reduce the uninsured problem the right way by bringing the cost of insurance down. With that, I will yield to questions.